This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. I want to bring on John Grisham. Hello, everybody. Hey, Mitch. Hey, hey John. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? Good. And that was going to, I was going to ask you, how are you when, in the middle of all this crazy pandemic stuff? You and your family are fine, I hope. We are fine. We live in central Virginia. We live on a farm way out in the country. So we're sort of uh, quarantined by nature. And we've taken it very serious. Uh, this is a university town, so people here got behind it early on. We have not been hit hard yet. We have um, some really good hospitals, great doctors and nurses, and so far we have uh, just not seen a lot of cases, but we're still very, very protective and worried like everybody else. Yeah, well, that's how we are in South Florida. You know, we're, we're in the middle of tourism land, and, you know, so many people came to the beaches right, right. before – and we're still seeing some climb on some of our cases. The rest of Florida is not, but South Florida is still under quarantine. All of our stores are still closed, yeah. although our online stores are open. And we're starting to do some curbside service in our restaurants as well. Yeah, well, hang in there. There's so many bookstores that are closed, so many that are just probably will not reopen. And, uh, you know, we're just, we're just fighting it and trying to hang on. Well, I wanted to get to that later on. I mean, you've been such a friend of indie bookstores. I mean, I, it's legendary. Uh, when you were living in Mississippi most of the time, you know, Richard from Square Books and Johnny Evans from Lemuria. And the way you supported those guys was just so heartening. Well, what is yeah, your feeling? How do you feel about indie stores and what, what is the meaning of bookstores to you? It goes back to 1989 when I published A Time to Kill. And it was, I was unknown. The book was unknown. The publisher was small and unknown. And most, uh, most big bookstores, uh, chains, did not have time for an unknown author. Uh, but there were five stores uh, sort of in the Memphis Jackson area that opened up for me. My first book signing was at Square Books in June of 1989, Richard opened the store and we sold 44 books that day. And we were, were happy with that. Uh, Johnny had me in Jackson. Reed's had me in Tupelo. Burks had me in Memphis. And Mary Gay had me in Blyville. Those five stores uh, really uh, pushed the books big time. And when, when the firm came out a couple years later, suddenly all the big stores wanted me to you know, stop by. But I didn't have a lot of time. And for years, I went back to those five stores. Every year, we would sell 2,000 books, 3,000 books in one day and had some marathon signings. I finally got kind of tired of that. I still sign books for all of them every year, so they have plenty. But 
it was those independent bookstores and across the country. Independent bookstores are crucial for um, debut writers because they get behind a book and they hand sell it. And they, the, your, your indies know the product, they know the writers, they know the publishers, they know they read. So they know, you know good books when they see them, they know what's coming and they recommend them to their customers and they hand sell them. And we've lost so many independents in the past uh, 30 years. And uh, they, they were making a comeback uh, in numbers until this thing hit. So it's going to, it's going to be hard to come back, but you know, we're always going to have books and writers and great bookstores like yours. I think you're absolutely right. I think who knows how we'll look on the other side of this, but we will, there are always going to be places where people right. want to go. It's funny. I always talk about the fact that indie bookstores, um, we have a pre-existing condition. Uh, we have a comorbidity when it comes to this virus because we're all about drawing people to us. We're all about congregating. We're all about having people in for author events and discussions and all of that. And that's exactly what this virus thrives on. Yeah. So it's making us, it's, it's in 24 hours, it turned us all into virtual booksellers. So we're doing stuff like this. Yeah, and we hope, Mitch, that, um because of the isolation, because of the distancing, because of all the stuff that we're going through, that people uh, will read and need books and, and, uh, and still support the bookstores, buy more, read more. You know, we, we hope that's going to happen selfishly, sure. But uh, I think people are buying a lot of books these days because they have more time to read. I, I'm certainly reading a whole lot more. I'm writing a whole lot more. I'm not sure that's good, but uh, you know, we, it's kind of turned us inside to, in the house to spend more time reading. I think it's actually true. And I think all the numbers bear that out. I mean, you know, every indie that I know is selling so much more online than yeah. they ever did. And they're supporting, you know, there's, they under, you know, sometimes you don't know what you have until it's gone. And yep. I think that's the case here as well. You've also been one of the great supporters of other writers too. I remember when we invited you last year, I guess, God, it seems like forever, maybe it was two years ago at the Miami Book Fair and you came, but you brought along your two friends, David Grand, do you remember? Yeah. And, uh, it was David Grand and, um, uh, and Hampton Sides, Hampton Sides was there as well. The three of you had a great, great time. Yeah, uh, a couple of other, other Doubleday writers, nonfiction guys who I love their books. And we, uh, we had a wonderful time in Miami. And we're going to come back uh, maybe this November if we get to come back. Who knows what's going to happen? But uh, I was supposed to be in your store two weeks ago for Camino for a big book signing and a big book party. And when I, when I, I started touring three years ago with Camino Island, I did not tour for many years. And I went to 25 or 28 bookstores around the country. And wherever I would go, I would always uh, try to get a local writer or two to come to the store. I would sign books and we would you know, have a good time. Then we would have a program that we recorded on a podcast to have for forever. And we had a wonderful time talking to uh, other writers, uh, the books, booksellers. And, and you know, we have a big crowd. The fans were there. The people in the bookstores, uh, the, the buyers and readers really enjoyed it. And I had a wonderful time. I mean, in the past three years, I've, I've been able to meet people like uh, John Irving in Toronto, Ian McEwen in uh, New York, David Grand. Uh, I got really lucky in, um, in Louisville and met um, 
I, I keep I keep drawing a blank with these names. Um, she wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> she you, wrote the A through C murder way. mystery series. Um, Sue Grafton. Sue Grafton. Sue Grafton. We, we had a wonderful visit with Sue. Uh, we didn't know how sick she was, but she passed away a couple of weeks later. And I thought, well, you know, if I hadn't made the effort to go there, I would never have got to meet her. So it's, uh, I've got a list. James Lee Burke and people like that that I want to get around and see Larry McMurtry and John Le Carre in London. And I, I plan to do it a lot more in the years to come. Oh, you, you're in for a treat. You will love that. I mean, one of the things that was my thrill as, a, as an English major and someone who loved books, and as you say, we're the same, as I said, we're the same age, is just being able to meet people like you. So yeah. just the way you're going to meet these other writers, the fact that I, we got to spend some time in Miami together. Uh, I think we went to Joe's and had some stone crabs. But I remember a time to kill. I was at a SIBA convention. And uh, it was either in Nashville. I don't know where. Do you remember where your first SIBA convention was? Was it Nashville or Atlanta? I'm not I had, sure. I had two. I had one in Nashville and one in Orlando. Uh, well, I think that was with the firm. A Time to Kill was, I think, it was in Nashville. A long time yeah, ago. I think it was with Nash Nashville. And it was with your publisher. And you were, you were at your table with that book. Uh, I think that the first printing was about 5,000 copies or something. And I remember you and I had a fairly long conversation because I had just left law school. I had quit law school to open up a bookshop and you were talking about how you were still practicing law, right? If I'm yep. not mistaken. Yes. Talk about how, how did Time to Kill come, come about? A lot of people might not know. Well, I had never written anything before. Uh, it was 1985 and I was 30 years old and I had never studied writing. I'd never dreamed of being a writer. It just, you know, I wasn't, I was going to be a lawyer or a judge. And uh, I um, was inspired by uh, a courtroom drama, a live courtroom drama, to create this fictional story uh, set in a small town in Mississippi as played out through the eyes of an idealistic young attorney, very much like myself, who was struggling to uh, survive in a small town with too many lawyers. And I just started writing um, the story. And it took, um, it took three years of fairly hard work because I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, my wife uh, was a real supporter. She liked the story. I finally got the book written after three years and uh, went about the process of trying to get it published, which was a typical submission, rejection, back and forth to New York, long before the internet. And this is 1987 by now, 88, I guess. And uh, finally found an agent who liked the book and he found a publisher that, um, nobody ever heard of. And uh, so they published the book in June of 89, 5,000 hardback copies, and that never went back for more. It's a total flop. It never went back for more. Uh, there was no paperback initially, no foreign rights, and the book just kind of uh, languished and died a slow death. And um, I was disappointed. At the same time, I was, I was got in a habit of writing every day. And I had one, one uh, another story I thought was uh, far more commercial and accessible and popular and um, I was writing it. That was the firm. And the firm came out in March of 1991, almost 30 years ago. And uh, everything changed overnight. Three, is it 300 million John Grisham books are in print? That's pretty amazing. Huh? I don't know who counts those. I, I've, never, I've, never met the person, I've never met the person who counts those. I keep seeing that number. Uh, I'm not sure how accurate it is. It sounds good. 
but it's, nobody really knows how many copies we sell in South Korea right. or Thailand. Right. We don't really know. No, it's in, it's in like 42 languages now as well. It's yep. pretty amazing. Really, really uh, remarkable. You know, I, I have to tell you that um, as a bookseller, I really loved Camino uh, Island. Um, and you, you delved right in, it's based in Florida as well, northern, central Florida. But uh, I just fell in love with it. And same with Camino Winds. In fact, that's the book that John is kind of publishing right now. This is Camino Winds. John, why don't you, you know, you call it an entertainment. Tell me what you mean by that. And uh, tell me why you decided to go this route. Because the two books before that, I'm not talking about Rooster Bar, but the other two had to do a little bit more with social justice yeah. and some of the issues that concern you. So was, were the, are the Camino books a kind of Tupper, Tupperware release for you, sort of? Sure. Yeah. O over the years, I think I'd written probably about 10 legal thrillers. And I wondered if I could write something else, something maybe a little bit lighter, something that was not about uh, capital punishment or wrongful convictions or all the issues I deal with. And so I wrote uh, a childhood memoir called A Painted House. That was very different, no lawyers. And I often own, I, guess, I wrote a football book called Bleachers. I wrote a comic novel called Skipping Christmas. And then 10 years ago, I started writing kids books, a series. And so I've got I've written a lot of those books. Now, I do the smaller books that are a little bit lighter. Camino Island uh, was intended to just be a good old fashioned beach book, uh, a pure entertainment, no lawyers, no issues, just pure fun. And by the time I finished Camino Island three years ago, I knew I was going back there for for more stories. Uh, Camino Wins is number two. There will be a number three. Oh, good. Beyond Beyond that, I really can't see. But we, we vacationed at Amelia Island, north of Jacksonville, uh, for 25 years. That's our, that's our hangout. We love the place. And we bought, built a house there 10 years ago, and, and we're trying to get there now for a couple of weeks. Uh, and so I had this idea for a, uh, a story about some stolen books and stolen manuscripts, rare books, because I'm fascinated by the thievery in that business. Uh, I collect rare books. Right. And I love to read about them and I love to read stories. And so I was talking to my wife one day and I said, how could, how could I fashion a good old fashioned mystery involving rare books? And that's where Camino Island came from. Uh, the, the island is very similar to Amelia Island, but not completely. Uh, the bookstore is basically Square Books in Oxford, set down there on Main Street in the town of Santa Rosa. And I had way too much fun with it. Uh, it's, just, uh, it's just a lot of fun to write. With Camino Winds, we're back on the same island as a hurricane approaches. And um, there's a, one of the local writers. And part of the really the good colorful part of Camino Island is a, a literary mafia. There are a bunch of writers there that hang out around the bookstore, around Bruce, the, the owner of the bookstore. Which is not unlike, it's not unlike Square Books, right? Oh, Mitch, when we moved to Oxford in 1990, uh, Square Books was uh, thriving. And Willie Morris was uh, the writer in residence at Ole Miss. Barry Hanna was teaching at Ole Miss. Larry Brown had just broken out. And uh, that's where I was hanging out uh, most of the time at Square Books. And Richard back then, and still now, is on the national circuit. So all the writers come through Oxford. And I met dozens of writers, you know, hang out, ate with them, drank with them, you know, signed books with them. 
it was a great literary atmosphere in the early 1990s and still is. Uh, but I'm gone and, and, and all those, my, he, my friends are all dead now. But there's still a lot of, there's even more writers in Oxford today than ever before. So it's a real literary community. And I love that feel of, of Camino Island, the writers get together. So during, during the hurricane and Camino winds, one of them uh, is murdered in such a way by a professional that at first they don't realize he's been murdered. And uh, the police are too busy dealing with the aftermath of the hurricane. And so they don't really have time to investigate his murder. He's a friend of Bruce's. So Bruce and some buddies take off like the Hardy Boys to solve this murder mystery. And it's, it's a murder mystery. It's, and it's great. I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to put any spoilers in there, but everyone should run out and get it. In fact, we're going to have, John has signed some book plates. And if I was told by my, my social media people, and I don't know how this works, but if you, if you go to our um, books and books heading and you click on that, there's a way for you to buy the book, uh, okay. even today through Instagram Live. And we'll make sure that we include one of, one of John's uh, signatures on that as well. So that's great. I, I loved also the last, uh, I loved The Guardians that you just right. wrote. Right. I thought that was tremendous, really tremendous. But then I also loved The Reckoning. I thought yeah. The Reckoning was, it was so different for you. Did you feel when you were writing it that it was a different kind of book as well? Oh, sure. Sure, it's the only book I've written, Mitch, that took place before I was born. So we, we were born, as we know, in 1955. Uh, but this was, uh, uh, took place in 1946, back during the war. And it's, uh, that was a, a, a bit of a, a struggle or a bit of a challenge to do the research and get, and get the setting correct. Uh, but it's a story of, a, it's, it's based on a story I heard 30 years ago, that someone told and I overheard the story about a small town in Mississippi where one prominent man killed another and would never say why. He took his secret to his grave, he was executed. And he never told anybody why he did it. I was, it's a long story, but they hung him for it in 1930 something. It's supposed to be a true story. I've not verified it, I've, I've not found anybody. I can't remember who told the story, but I've always remembered that. And so that, that's how the, that's what the book is about. And uh, the mystery of why this one prominent man killed another one. And my, my challenge with uh, the reckoning was to take the reader all the way down to the last page before the reader knows why. And it was a challenge, uh, but it was also- uh, It succeeded, it was, yeah. it was riveting. I read it in one or two sittings. Well, it was really, really. And then the one, and then the, uh, the Guardians, which is dealing with um, wrongful convictions and right. you know where where did this sense of social justice? You grew up in the South. Right. You grew up in Mississippi. You actually, if I'm not mistaken, you also you were involved in politics there too. You were running. You ran for state house. Right. So where did this sense of social justice come from in it, you? Yeah, it's become more uh, pronounced in the last I think ten years. Uh, in 2006, I published a book called The Innocent Man, my only nonfiction book. And that, the research of that book took me into the world of wrongful convictions. And I realized how many innocent people are actually in prison, uh, serving long sentences or even on death row for somebody else's crime. And that still bothers me today. And I've been on that bandwagon for a long time. 
I hope I don't overdo it, but every wrongful conviction story uh, is a is a fantastic uh, story to tell because of all the injustice, because of the human suffering, because of the waste of time and human life and money and all that. And, you know, so the, the stories fascinate me, and, and, and I, I still, you know, I correspond today with several people who are in prison who are innocent, and I, I, I try to be their friend, but it, it really bothers me. I'm on the board of the Innocence Project in, in New York and um, active with the Innocence Project here in Virginia and Mississippi, and uh, it's just a cause. It's just something I've really um, uh, taken to in the past uh, 15 years. So, and I also explore, you know, the death penalty and its problems and uh, mass incarceration and uh, sentencing disparities and um, for-profit prisons. And there's so many, there's so many problems, so many things wrong with our legal system that could be fixed if we had the will to do it. And we would save zillions of bucks and a lot of you know wasted human lives if we had the will to do it. And it's as a lawyer, it's very frustrating still for me to see a problem in the system that we that's not fixed, and therefore it leads to a lot of injustice. And that still makes me angry. And the, the anger is a good thing. The anger, the anger causes books like The Guardians. The anger, the anger makes me want to write about that issue, always in the context of a popular novel, always in the context of entertain, entertainment first and, and most important, but the best books are when I take an issue, like one of those I just mentioned, and sort of weave a thriller through it and entertain the reader, but get the pages turning. And then when the, when the book is over, maybe the reader can, you know, can, can stop and say they learned something or they care about something more or whatever. That's, that's what I do occasionally. And then I'll write the pure entertainments like a sports book uh, or a Camino book. Well, you know, it's interesting on The Guardians, a very close friend of mine who's a retired lawyer actually uh, approached the organization to, to volunteer based on reading your book. So it does have that effect. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful way in. And having your voice out there, you know, as popular as it is, can effectuate change like nothing else, I believe. Yeah. Um, you mentioned sports. So you wanted to be a baseball player, right? That's the legend. Uh, a lot of ambition, not much talent. Uh, like all, like every kid, every kid on my block, we were all going to play for the Cardinals. We used to get in fights about who was going to play what position for the Cardinals. We were 12 years old, and we knew every player. You know, I've always envied my big city friends. Now, now that I met them, you know, guys in Boston, New York, Baltimore, Washington, who grew up with the team. They had a Detroit. They had a real right. team that they could go watch and play as a kid. Well, we were so far removed from that in rural Arkansas and rural Mississippi, but every night the Cardinals were on the radio. Every game, we listened to every game. Um, right. I can vividly recall playing Little League Baseball as a 12-year-old, being in the dugout, hot summer night, and the bleachers, are your, our parents and families and friends, everybody's at the bleachers, and you would hear three or four different radios scattered around uh, with the Cardinals on. We, we always knew, we were playing a game we always knew what the score was in the Cardinals game. We just, that's what we lived. I bet we were in the same grade when we skipped school to watch Bob Gibson in the World Series, right? I forget what year that was. In 1967, 1968. In 1967, he won three games against the Red Sox. And in 1968 right. against the Tigers, he struck out 18 in the first game. My mom, uh, who was a strict disciplinarian, she called the school that afternoon day game in Bush Stadium 
She called the school and told the principal that I was not feeling well so I could walk home about 10 minutes <laughs> to go home and sit in front of television and watch Bob get some, get Bob get some strike out 18 Detroit Tigers. And I'll never uh, forget that. Right. I grew up with a, with a love of baseball and wanted Wasn't to play. That, was that Denny McClain that he pitched yeah. again? Yes, Mickey Lovitz yeah. playing, yeah, 1960. Yeah. And the Tigers won that series. Uh, they did, they did. I remember, you know, being from Miami, we didn't have any teams here right. either, any baseball teams. So I just got to like anybody. I was yeah. lucky. And Mitch, um, can, you, can you believe this? And, and this spring, we've had gorgeous weather here in Virginia. Uh, I have a Little League baseball park around the corner from my farm. We have seven fields. Uh, I'm the owner and commissioner. Uh, right. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you if you want it. Uh, but we have we have 400 kids every year playing on 30 teams, and the ballpark is just beautiful. And there's nobody there. I love college baseball. There's nobody there. Nobody. No games. The Cardinals aren't playing. It's it's baseball has always endured, you know, wars and depressions and everything. But now the pandemic has just killed us. You know, there's no baseball. Yeah. Well, they did say that if things loosen up a little they may try to do a um truncated season yeah they're talking about 80 games or something yeah we would i i'm with you i i miss that immensely I, i'm a big basketball fan too and i miss that that yeah. was horrible to see that in and i know you're a big football fan too last uh you were so generous with your friends you came down to the orange bowl last year right because virginia was yeah. yeah virginia won nine games last year and won the uh, uh won their division yeah. in, in the acc and qualified for the orange bowl played florida in the orange bowl and uh we took a bunch of guys down and uh stayed at south beach and you were kind enough to get us a table at joe stone crab again and we right. had a great time there and uh just love love the trip down and uh you know it's january it's warm down there and cold here and we had, we had a grand time so so talk a little bit about how did you conceive, I know you're from Mississippi, so it might have been a little Faulkner-esque, but where did Ford County come from, the whole idea of Ford County? Well, it was a fictionalized version of where I was living. I did not want to write, you know, uh, I didn't want to write about people I actually knew. Um, it, and I, I had to set the book somewhere. I knew it would be rural Mississippi. Rural, but, you know, we were only 15 miles south of Memphis, so we were not that far out. Um, and it's, it was my courthouse that I described uh, because that's where I worked almost every day as a young lawyer trying to be in the courtroom every day. And I knew the clerks and the policemen, the prosecutors, and that's where I'm from. And it's, it's easy for me to write about that because of the culture, the food and customs and the way people talk. And it's just, uh, it's, that's where I would rather spend all my time as a writer. I'm writing a book now called A Time for Mercy that's sort of a sequel to A Time to Kill. It's the same characters. It's Jake Brigance back in the courtroom. And uh, that's, and I, I really enjoy that terrain, that, that turf, that's where I belong. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about, you know, this has been a time of a lot of loss in publishing particularly. And I think the last time we saw each other was at uh, the death, the, the memorial service for Sonny Maida. Talk a little bit about what he meant to you and what some of the publishing folks that you've dealt with over the years have meant to you as well. Well, I was not close to Sonny. Uh, Sonny sort of inherited me five or six years ago when they folded Doubleday into Knopf. And I'm still with Doubleday. I've been on Doubleday for 30 years. 
but I have a, I've been so blessed with the business to have the same team uh, at Doubleday. My agent, David Gernert, uh, has been my agent for 25 years. He was my editor at Doubleday in 1990 when he bought the firm. David bought the firm in January of 1990 with the same age, and we, we're still together, and we, you know, we talked this morning. Um, I have a, a great team uh, around me there. Um, Suzanne Hurst is the publisher. Uh, John Pitts does the marketing. Todd Dowdy does the publicity. John Fontana designs the jackets. I mean, those, those that's the art director, uh, and many more. And they've been there uh, for years. Uh, you know, I could publishing for me is uh, is never something to worry about because I've got the best people to do it, and they uh, they have my best interests at heart. And you know, I listen to them. I listen to them a lot. I think it's something that people don't realize that this business that we're in, this literary business, it's really one gigantic family that everybody sort of cares about, looks after. Everybody feels like they're on a mission doing something more important than what it is we're doing. But yeah. ultimately it comes down to the book and it comes down to, you know, giving something that somebody wants to read. It's a, a very low tech thing for yeah. us being in such a high tech world right now. So uh, what are you reading? What are you, what are you excited about now? I'm halfway through a great book, The Splendid in the Bile by Eric Larson, uh, about the battle, oh. of, battle of Britain and Churchill and Hitler. And it's, uh, I love reading about World War II. You saw that in, in The Reckoning, where right. I took off and went to the war in uh, the Philippines for a third of the book. Um, I've, uh, let me see, um, what am I reading? I'm rereading uh, Salaries the Bones by Jesmyn Ward, won the National Book Award 10 years That's ago. Right. I just finished Harlan Coben's latest book and enjoyed it. Uh, finished James McBride's latest book, Deacon Kong Kong. He's, uh, James is a buddy and always fun to hang out with and a very, very good writer. I finished uh, John Le Carre's last book. Um, I read all of his books when they come out. He's one of my favorites. Um, on the Nightstand is a book I'm eager to get to. It's called uh, Hitler's First 100 Days. It's a story wow. of when seized power in a very short period of time and became an absolute dictator. And he did so uh, sort of with the approval of the German people. They bought in. Uh, and these were not, these people were not Nazis. They were not bad people, but uh, Hitler was just took over. And it's, uh, I haven't read the book yet, but I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that one. Um, Scott Tarot just came out last week with his latest. Uh, I, I get Scott's books as soon as they come out and read them. He's a friend and uh, I've always admired his writing. Uh, so I'm, I got a stack of books. I'm reading a lot. Well, this gives us the time to do it. You know, just being all bottled up as we are. You are one of the greats and um, someone that I uh, am just so happy to have gotten to know over these last few years. I've always admired you greatly. The new book, the new book is Camino Wins and uh, everyone's got to do themselves a gigantic favor by, uh, by buying it and reading it and all of that. John, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> I, I, assume, I assume you're off to another, another one of these events, but I thank you for this. Uh, it means a lot. You kept your word. You said you, said you were coming down. Here you are. I'm going to be there in, in the flesh as soon as I can, and we'll have a big party and go back to Joe's Stone Crab and uh, hang out on the beach and have some fun. <laughs>
Thank you, Mitch. Thank you, John. Be My safe pleasure. and be well. You, you be care. safe. Okay. Take care.